he came to our house. Lisa was just embarrassed, but I walked Guy back to our bedroom. He sat on the edge of our bed as I showed him what I do and how I do it. So are we talking about business still, or are we talking about something else? This is Countdown Aviation getting financing. I'm joking, you're telling him to sit on your bed and how you do it. <laughs> there were no chairs. Okay, gotcha. It's a small bedroom. Okay, I didn't know if you knew this is a business podcast. He asked me after I had the check in my hand, why did I sell it? And I said, because you paid me a crazy amount of money. And he said, well, let me just tell you about people like you, which you know when a conversation starts like that, it's going to get good. So you could imagine some of the stories over the years of meeting your wife at Screw Products. But it was a hard discussion when I called my sister to say, I'm letting your husband go today. And that, you know, it does take luck and hard work and a lot of things to be successful. You know, it doesn't just happen. Hi, my name's Howard Gottlieb. I am 64 years old. I live in Arlington, Texas, which is the home of the Dallas Cowboys and the Texas Rangers. I am currently the CEO of a company called Readathon. I've been a serial entrepreneur my whole life, but I am most excited about the company that we have now. The actual corporate name is Readathon Fundraising Company. And we provide a reading fundraiser for elementary schools really all over the world. We've been doing it for about a little over five years now. It's taken off well. We've had schools in every single state in America use our reading program. All kinds of schools use it, although it's predominantly elementary schools. We help the poorest schools. We've helped Title I schools in inner cities like Houston and New York. We help rich schools like some in Beverly Hills and faith-based schools. We've really run the gamut. And besides that, somehow people in other countries have actually found out about our reading program. And we've had schools in seven different countries use it. So it's just a better option that's more relevant for schools. Our thought is hopefully most schools in America and the world have their kids reading. And if we could provide a risk-free way to monetize what they're already doing, people would gravitate to the product. And so far, it seems to be working. So when I'm hearing readathon, is that like, I've heard of like walkathons where people pledge money for how many miles you walk and stuff like that. I mean, is that kind of the same idea with readathon? It's along the same lines, two major differences. One, obviously, we exchange the physical walking to physical reading. But historically, Things like walkathons, like you said, are unit based. People say, I'm going to walk 10 miles or three hours or 10 laps or whatever. Um, at Readathon, we've eliminated the pledge system and we did that for a couple of reasons. Um, we found it's a much better world without pledges. So basically kids participate in a two week reading event. And really what they commit to with their school is that they will read as much as possible in a two-week period. We challenge them to complete 10 reading sessions, but that's just a suggestion. So unlike the walkathon, 
if someone only reads two sessions or they read 200 sessions, it doesn't matter. In fact, one of the things that's interesting when you think about reading in kids is one child in an inner city school that struggles to read who completes one or two reading sessions really may be a harder worker than the superstar student who reads 200 reading sessions. So, you know, our focus is on reading. And I know this is maybe not relevant to what you're asking, but something I'm believably excited about. At a meeting last week, we decided to go into our system and tally all of the minutes that readers have logged through our website. And I nearly spit out my coffee when the number exceeded a billion minutes. In fact, I believe we posted it on our homepage. I think it's 1.8 billion minutes. So while we started this as a fundraiser, one of the most exciting things to me is that we've facilitated that kind of volume of reading. I honestly don't know that any other company or website on the planet can claim that. I don't know that for a fact, but it's something that we're extraordinarily proud of is to make reading a focus. And if you could raise money at the same time, boy, it's just a win-win for everybody. And so are you a non-for-profit or is this like company that you're actually trying to make a profit in private company? We're a private company. If you think about a GoFundMe kind of model, although we don't charge in advance for you to use our system, there's no upfront cost. We do take a percentage any donations that are received through our system. Then in return, you get a system that you can't possibly replicate that's improved all the time, that's tried and proven, and we offer everything the school needs. I mean, they've got an absolute partner with our customer service department that walks them through every step of their fundraiser. But yes, we are definitely a for-profit company. And if it's okay with you, we'll probably dive into details a little bit more here in the upfront in the interview with your readathon because you have an eclectic career and I think it's very interesting, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page as far as your business now and what it does. I mean, if I'm reading right, like, so is your client, basically you're trying to find a school and encourage that school to use readathon.com to have these kids basically log minutes to raise money for their school? Is that the idea? Absolutely. Our primary market is reaching schools directly. We found in the COVID world, we're actually being approached by school districts who were seeing the logic of having their schools monetize one educational aspect. But historically, schools or PTAs would approach us looking for a better fundraising option. So this is to help them get extra money. The school you're saying by using a readathon, they can get extra money instead of doing like a bake sale or something like that you're saying? Right. If you have kids been in elementary school, you know all about school fundraisers. What a lot of people don't realize is how important they are to schools. And although no one likes to run one, and if the truth be known, they probably would rather not hold them, the need is greater than ever. A lot of the things like field trips and library books and the sign that you see outside the school and supplies, things like that are paid for outside of the school budget. And school budgets, we've been in the fundraising industry in one way or another for about 18 years. And I don't know of a single year in that 18 years that schools have rejoiced and said, hey, they just raised my budget. I have extra money. It's just something you never hear. So the needs are great. And interestingly, right now, in a COVID world, one thing we're hearing that we've never heard before are people are wanting to eat, raise even more money because they think there's lots of needy people within their school community. And they'd like to be able to reach out and help their own folks 
buy book supplies, help with electronics. It's an interesting industry. In hard times, school fundraising actually becomes more critical. And certainly you would define now as hard times. So how much does it cost a school to set it up with y'all? It costs them absolutely nothing in advance. There's no risk. There's no obligation. School signs up. It takes less than five minutes. We get all the information we need from them, and then we help them choose the best dates. But if they never start, they owe me nothing. If they raise just a little bit of money, they owe me a fee proportionate to the amount that they raise. So one good thing, and I would think everyone would agree with this, if you could pay everybody based on the results you got from the service they provided you, that would be a good thing. So in anything, I had heart surgery, and depending on how fast I healed, you based your fee or something silly like that. You know that if you're paying me a lot of money, you've raised a ton. And if you've raised a little, you owe me a little. So there's really no risk, and there is zero upfront cost. And interestingly, it cost me about $200 for a school to try to use this in hard costs. So we actually have more risk in your school trying my system than you do. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's listening who's like a business mindset, anyone who could hire someone at 100% commission would probably do that because there's no risk to the business owner. And you're kind of like, that's what you're basically saying is that you're going to get a percentage of how much they end up basically funding. But if they end up owing you a lot, it's because they ended up raising a lot. Because I'm looking at your testimonials and it looks like some of the amounts that you've raised are like 30, 40,000. I mean, what's been the highest amount you've raised or an average amount for raising in these schools? So this past season, we actually had a school that approached $100,000 in a two-week reading event. Now, that's not typical, but it was also the best fundraiser that that school did. And the school was just outside of the Houston city limits. Nothing really stood out about them other than they have involved parents, which is always a good thing. So we had quite a few schools do $50,000 or more. The schools you see on our testimonials page are obviously just the schools that are willing to provide a testimonial. And unfortunately, some of the biggest really want to stay under the radar and don't want to publicize the amount of money that they raise. But if you look at the universe of people that have used us, the average school should count on with just moderate effort on their part, raising between fifteen dollars and $20,000 for their school. Interestingly, on the low side, we help a lot of Title I schools, and they typically struggle with school fundraising. I got a phone call and I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to complain. We had told them you can expect to raise hopefully $15,000. And they had just raised under $4,000. So I expected to hear these people say, you know, what happened? You told me this. Well, the phone call started out with Howard. This is about five times more than we had ever raised before. So I'm thrilled with that. When people ask me about what's average, what I like to say back is, I don't know what average or typical is in the world anymore. None of us do, you know, in any aspect. Right. You can have two schools, three miles apart, same socioeconomic background, and they do vastly different. And then people will say, well, why did they do better? And, you know, we just don't know. I wish we did, but we don't. And even, although this is, I was going to say, schools that use us year after year, will vary in the amount that they raise, but they typically improve year after year. So that's the other good thing about our program. It's people don't get tired of their kids reading. 
And most schools that have signed up with us and had a little bit of success with us just come back and they're lifelong raving customers and, and our best salespeople, frankly. But I think now everyone kind of understands what you're doing with Readathon. And I guess anyone who's listening, I mean, I imagine some of my listeners, they have kids or whatever. Should they just go to like readathon.com or does it have hyphens? Just so again, someone, if they wanted to pause the interview now, they could go check out how they hopefully could raise money for their school. Right. So they would go to readathon.com with hyphens. What we suggest to people is simply go to Google and write the word readathon and you'll find us. We own the word readathon. You can't help but find us if you're searching for us. So we'll dive more even in the business aspects of Readathon, but I just think it's important for everyone to kind of understand what your service provides because it seems like a good service and it's cool that this is not a non-for-profit. Like you can still be a profitable company and do things that are helpful in the world. Absolutely. And again, with our meeting last week, when I found out the impact we had on childhood reading, I was floored. I mean, it sounds silly, but it gives me chills. If at the end of my business career, I can say that we impacted reading that much. I mean, I will walk away very proud. Well, now that we're talking about, you just said the end of your business career, how about we jump to the beginning of it? Where do you want to start? We may want to start back in my sports writer days in college. We've heard for years that it's important to have a diversified portfolio. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, that kind of thing. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, you'll typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why isn't it one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify? Simple, it hasn't been available to investors like you and me until now, thanks to Fundrise. They make it easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here's how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or preferred long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise has you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than 1 billion in assets for 130,000 investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged 8.7 to 12.4% annual returns and investors have earned more than 79 million in dividends alone. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy to use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved and operated via asset updates. So start building your better portfolio today. Get started at Fundrise.com slash inspiration to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. That's Fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash inspiration to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash inspiration. I recently started reading a book called Believe in People, not only because they're sponsoring this ad spot, but because the book is filled with compelling examples of how to solve really big problems. Believe in People by Charles Koch and Brian Hooks is the collected stories of social entrepreneurs who created uncommon solutions for the common good. A former gang leader turned peace broker in his community, an amateur athlete who created one of the most innovative recovery programs in the country, 
Learn what inspired them to make things better in their communities and how they're still discovering new and better ways of doing things. It's a message of hope in a time of crisis and optimism in time of division. For anyone looking around the country right now and thinking there has to be a better way, well, this book is for you. Pre-order the book today at believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration and gain access to bonus content ahead of its November 17th publication. Again, that's believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration. Okay. So yeah, where did you go to college and where were you? So I was not the best student in high school. Ended up going to a New Jersey state school called Stockton State University. And I did that after taking about a year off. And during that year, I became a handyman at a Holiday Inn. And I learned during that year that I really didn't want to be a handyman at a Holiday Inn. So I went to college. Problem with college back then is I had to pay for it. So my first job in college, I was fortunate to become a copy boy for the sports department at the Atlantic City Press. And I worked real hard and I loved the job and they actually let me become a sports writer there. And I worked my way up. I was there for three years during college. And that seems like a dream job for most guys, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It was even better here in a second when I tell you the guy that had the Philadelphia Eagles beat got sick and they gave me the beat covering the Philadelphia Eagles at 19 years old. Okay, that's amazing. If you're a good writer, like any guy get to write about sports all day and do that, most guys I think would die to do that. Absolutely. And my story that fits right in with my move from being a writer to being an entrepreneur, because I had started as a copy boy, our publisher was not paying me very much. Again, I was covering the Eagles. I was also covering the Philadelphia Flyers. So I was extremely busy working and going to school full time. But I went in and asked him for a raise, said, boy, you know, I've worked my rear end off. I need more money. And he looked at me. His name was Mr. Reynolds. I'll never forget this day. He quietly pulls open a drawer and he says, Howard, I have 500 resumes here from people that want your job. So the answer to a raise is no. I understood, but I realized that while being a sports writer would have been fun, it wouldn't have provided a great lifestyle in that level market. And while I was a very efficient sports writer, I wasn't a creative guy that created controversy, but I was a decent sports writer. And how much of a raise were you trying to get? That's the only thing I've heard about sports writing too. Like it can be fun or whatever, but then at the end of the day, they don't get paid very much. It seems like You know, it's been, I hate to say it, 40 years. I don't remember the dollars, but I was not looking for much. I was working 60 and 70 hours a week already. So I just needed a little bit more money and just thought I was worth more than that, frankly. Okay. And so you're about 20, 21 at this point in early 80s? Early 80s. Right. In fact, I remember it was actually 79 or 80. And the reason I remember is this is another crazy story. I got offered in late 1979, I guess it was, a job as assistant corporate sales manager for a company in Dallas because I started looking for work and a friend of mine knew what I had done, worked my way through college and was a sports writer and got me the interview and I got offered the job, but I had to take it by December. Well, the Eagles ended up in the Super Bowl. They were a good team. 
1980, they ended up playing the Oakland Raiders, and they lost in the Super Bowl. But if you're a sports writer, other than maybe covering the Masters, the greatest sporting event you could cover as a writer would have been the Super Bowl. But I missed that opportunity. Packed up my cinder block shelves and mattress that was on the floor and moved to Dallas for this new job. Okay. And the reason you missed it, just so everyone knows, is like Super Bowl's played in like February, right? And so you had to take that job by December. So you had to leave like a month and a half before they made it to the Super Bowl. So yeah, you go from New Jersey to Dallas. And did you have any family or anything there? I had none. And one of the sad things is I come from a working class family. My dad was a New York City fireman. My mom was a bookkeeper. They divorced when I was really young. And here I was telling them, hey, I got a job as an assistant corporate sales manager for a chemical company. I remember my mom saying, don't get your hopes up too much. It may not work out. And I thought, you're kidding me. What mother <laughs> says that to their child? I think my dad understood what had just happened, that I was the first one in our family, other than one uncle, to graduate from a four-year college. At the time, it was a very good job. But yes, a good friend of mine, a musician who still plays music along the shore of New Jersey, drove with me in my unair-conditioned Toyota Corolla with my German Shepherd, and off we drove to Dallas to start a new life. How long is that drive there? Well, we went through Florida to see my folks. And again, this is 1980. I'm from the 60s and 70s. So Richie's hair, the guy that went with me, was halfway to his waist. My hair was pretty long, and one of the memorable deals of that trip was we actually stopped at a Burger King in Bunky, Louisiana. And we went into the store, and all of a sudden, we'd sat down to eat, and we realized it was dead quiet, and a few of the people started moving towards our table, and we were so out of place. We were not terribly welcome way back then in Bunky, so we hightailed it off to Dallas. You went to New Jersey to Florida, and that's where you stopped in Louisiana on the way back to Dallas there? Because it seems like, yeah, that's quite a road trip. And you said your hair, what, you and your buddy had long hair then? We did. And what's your hair like now today? Because I see a picture. I have very little of it. And what I have <laughs> yeah, is very gray. <laughs> <laughs> Think James Taylor. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Now our people have a visual. So now you're like early 80s. You're going into Dallas with your friend and excited about a new job? He's excited for me. I'm excited. We pull into Dallas. We actually got into the city at night. We're going to go into downtown Dallas to look for what the nightlife was. And we drive into Dallas, and there is not a soul on the streets. It's so different than the East Coast. And what I came to found out was the center of entertainment isn't in downtown Dallas. It is now a little bit, but it wasn't then. So we didn't know where we were. But he came with me, stayed for a couple of days, headed home, and I headed in for my first day at the new job. And so, I guess first day walking in, were you excited? I was nervous as all get-go. I'm a poor kid from New Jersey that had to buy my first suit ever. So I went to Kmart and bought a, what now I remember as a polyester suit that I could afford. Those slacks and every day and the jacket about every other day so I didn't look as poor as I was. Even the interview I went to for the job, I dressed in jeans and a t-shirt because I didn't know any better. But the president of the company was impressed enough by my three years of working full-time and going to school full-time that he gave me the job in spite of my apparel. When you get the job there, I mean, is it a significant raise, I guess, if you're leaving the sports writing stuff? This sounds not like a lot of money, but 40 years ago, 
I think I was making twenty-two or twenty-three thousand dollars to start, which at the time was good money. I could afford a good car, a nice apartment, could eat out, didn't have money worries. You just finding girlfriends and running around and having a good time there? Running around, started enjoying life. Although I did miss my friends and I missed sports writing and I was out of place for a little bit, but I did dive into the job. I remember they gave me a project. My first big solo project was to work on a contract with the Defense Department in Michigan. I can't remember all the terms, but they had been unsuccessful at working out government contracts, and we were lucky and worked out a deal with that Defense Department purchasing agent. And we came back from Detroit with a feather in my cap. And shortly thereafter, the president of the chemical company bought a industrial fastener company in Texas. And he asked me if I would help run that company, which was shocking. At that point, I'm 24, no experience running anything. But he gave me that chance, and it turned out to be life-changing in a lot of respects. I learned on my own how to run a company, and I learned a lot of lessons in what not to do when I finally owned my own businesses. So you're 24 years old. So what's the name of the company at this point in time? And can you have more details? Because this seems like your first big jump as far as learning. Again, anyone who's listening to, no matter what position you're in, even if you don't own the company yet, being put into a different levels, you can start thinking of like how you would run your own business or whatever. So it sounds like this was transformational for you before you, we start talking about all these other companies you eventually ran. Absolutely. So the chemical company was Classic Chemical, which was the largest producer of car wax at the time, or the premium brand anyway. The name of the fastener company was extremely creative. It was Screw Products, which let's leave that alone. We've heard lots of jokes because that's actually where I meet my wife. So you could imagine some of the stories over the years of meeting your wife at Screw Products. Yeah, at the wedding. I could imagine how many stories. Yeah. <laughs> so Screw Products is struggling, to say the least. And why did he ask you? Were you just doing well at the chemical company for a couple of years that seemed like you were there for a few years? And he's like, hey, you saw potential in you? I don't know. He must have seen something of himself in me. And I was his project. I'm the one he hired in blue jeans and a t-shirt. And he was an interesting guy. He was a well-known turnaround specialist. And so I guess he thought that he could train me well and knew I succeeded where we were previously and was willing to work hard, obviously. Frankly, I'm glad he did it. It was probably not a wise decision at the time for him. I don't think that I would put an inexperienced 23, 24-year-old in charge of a company that I owned, but he did. Well, I guess thinking back then, you know, now I feel like it's maybe easier to find people like with LinkedIn or whatever, as far as qualified people versus back then, this is still kind of pre-internet, right? Oh, absolutely. Long before the internet. Yeah. So I feel like maybe it's harder as far as maybe him to find the right people. So again, he's taking you from the chemical company and then he puts you in a manager position at the screw products business. Right. And was he the owner of the company or was he just like a manager? He was the owner. That was the best I knew, the first company he owned. And he was very well known in Dallas. He uh, used to work for the Thompson Brothers, who were founders of 7-Eleven. I mean, he was a well-respected guy, but he spent no time at Screw Products, and the company began to really struggle and was on the verge of bankruptcy when he finally put me completely in charge of the company. 
And there, I learned a lot of lessons. Anybody out there who wants a business career, if you could spend some time on a turnaround, you learn under fire. There is no easy path. There are no easy days. But we spent about a year moderately turning that company around. We sold off some branches, renegotiated some debt, and we did well enough that one day the owner came in and said, Howard, good job. I think my wife will be extremely excited about what we've done with the company. And he gives me $30,000 and he says, your wife's father is a car dealer. Let's buy Annie a Cadillac. Well, this is interesting. So I say fine. And then he handed me a check for $500 as my bonus. So you can imagine my reaction. I tried not to let my jaw hit the ground. Just to understand, you're saying, so he gave you money to go get a car for your wife's... For his wife. Uh, for his wife. Yeah. My wife's father was a car dealer, so he knew that. Oh, so you could get a deal from your wife's father, and he wanted to go get a new car for his wife. To celebrate. <laughs> you to celebrate you turning around the Screw Products company? Right. You're saying he's basically trying to give his wife like $30,000 worth of a vehicle, right? And then you got how much? $500. And his wife wasn't involved in the company at all? No. And I have been always grateful for the $500. Don't get me wrong. But you don't set up giving someone $500 by giving somebody else 30 <laughs> Especially telling them that. <laughs> That's the worst part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was stunning. So we decided then and there that we were leaving. What do you mean? Like when you both decided? So you still kept an even keel or were you? I left about six months later. Yeah, right then you can't really say anything, but it's not like you're obviously going to forget that. Right. Before we jump further, if you don't mind, because you said you kind of learned a lot there. You said you sold off some branches, so that helped. I mean, how big was the Screw Products company here? At the time, it was probably $4 million. Okay. And that's big in the early 80s too, right? Absolutely. I feel like that's like equivalent of like $20 million today or something like that. And then... Right. So what other things did you do to turn it around? And this is important, hopefully a lesson or two that maybe we could help. Because even if you're learning from a bad boss, or it sounds like you were in a bad situation that you're able to turn around. But if you have a bad boss or a bad situation, that's something you'll remember later on, even as we're talking about this story today, that people can still be like, oh, I remember how bad things can get. Like that, It's helpful to actually learn about some of these things. So what were you able to do, again, to turn around more of the Screw Products company? The first thing that we looked at was the amount of debt the company had and the lack of cash. So I spent most of the days attempting to renegotiate debt with vendors and banks and to raise cash wherever I could. We had two fairly new branches that had potential, but were not throwing off a great amount of cash flow. And the removal of a competitor for some of our competitors made those branches attractive acquisitions. I don't know if that makes sense. So we were moving into markets and competing with people entrenched in those markets. So at the time, if I was willing to sell our branch, our newfound branch, at a reasonable price, it removed your competitor. So we sold off two branches. The other thing that I did was, and this led to my future in business, is we were just really industrial fasteners. But at the time, the defense industry was expanding at an unbelievable pace, and we weren't involved in that industry. So I opened up an area of the company that focused on aerospace fasteners and components in addition to commercial fasteners. 
Well, that seems like a big key to be honest. So anyone who's looking at if there's a sub market of something that you can serve, right? You saw that you're like, hey, we need to get in there somehow if that's going to keep growing. Absolutely. I knew that we were getting more and more competitors and our best branch owned its market. So there was no upside there. There was only downside to people in attempting to compete with us in that market. And Dallas, I mean, there was a new fastener distributor, it seemed like every month. So the writing on the wall did not look terribly good. You said these are some things that you did appreciate you diving more in detail of like the turnaround. And then basically at the end of it, when you did turn around, your boss wanted to give a big bonus to his wife and give you a smaller bonus. So you weren't too happy. And basically six months later, you kind of said it was time to start my own business or where did you go from there? I left and I started our first company, which isn't on LinkedIn, was a company called Countdown Aviation. And I had a non-compete, so I had agreed that I could not sell to any of the old company's customers, which made starting on my own tough. And at the time, we had an 18-month-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And we lived in a little three-bedroom, 1,600-square-foot house. So I started Countdown Aviation out of my bedroom. And what year and how old were you? At this point, probably 85. So at that point, I'm 29 years old. And how much money did you have? Did you have some money saved up from your old job? Not much money. I can't remember now, but I was out of my mind. Do you think like probably 10 or 20,000? At the most. Yeah. A new company was called Countdown Aviation. This is your first company that you're starting off. And so this has to deal with, like you were saying, that submarket. it seemed like you made the screw products company get into that you saw that. And so you're going to sell to aviation companies, these kind of screw parts or whatever. Right. Okay. At the time, I have always been a hard worker and I was confident enough, although crazy, to say I can do this. Back then, the internet didn't exist. So what I realized was there were a lot of parts that aerospace companies needed to buy that they had a hard time finding. And I had some sources and how to find difficult to find parts. And that was going to be my angle. And I was very fortunate that about two weeks into Countdown Aviation's existence, I got hold of a buyer at the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C. I can't remember the guy's last name, but his first name was Gene. And he gave me a chance with some parts he couldn't find. We found him that day. He bought it and he became just a regular customer. Well, I'm curious, how were you able to find these parts? Again, this is pre-internet. I don't even know how to do stuff <laughs> or most people are probably listening pre-internet. I'm just curious, how are you able to find these parts that this guy couldn't? In the industry at the time, there was a little known sourcing set of books, almost the size of a full set of encyclopedias, because they would tell you a government part number and possible sources. And it was almost like a pre-internet internet, because if you sold those parts, you could advertise there. The problem is not many people knew this company provided those resource books, but we did. In fact, if I remember, even back then, the set of books cost me about $1,000, and then I bought a monthly subscription as they got new sources. But you couldn't have done what I did now because the internet would help you find everything. Back then, it wasn't so easy. And the only reason you're able to find that, again, if you said you had a hard work ethic, it's probably because you put in the extra hours that maybe an older guy in your industry doesn't even want to spend the time trying to find out, like, how can I find those? But it seems like 
I mean, just listening so far and based on what you've said that that's kind of like your only choice because you had the non-compete where you couldn't sell to even the same people. Like you're going for this angle. And the only reason you're able to find that angle was because of this manual or whatever the subscription that you're able to get a hold of. And you're able to get a hold of that because it seems like grinding to try to find out where can I find these parts. Right. And then I started adding new sources to the book. I would call Austin's Aerospace and say, Austin, do you have NAS 43-2-7? And you would say, no, but have you called X company? So I would ask for X company's name. I would jot it down on that part number. And I built my own network of suppliers that were not in the reference books. You know, fortunately became good at it. And were you writing this down or did you have to use it? I mean, this was when people used typewriters too, right? We hand typed invoices at the time and kept manual books. So yes, it was all by hand, not easily retrievable. Different world. That's the reason I wanted to bring it up. I mean, some people might even forget that there's like typewriters and whatnot. I can imagine you're using fax machines to get these orders. I mean, were you using fax machines then? I think that's even pre-fax machine. I know. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, when I was a sports writer, teletype machines were still being used to get the news. So at that era, you know, you're just going to be getting into like fax technology and cell phone technology is going to come. You know, it, it didn't exist at the time either. Right. So I just want to point out, so anyone who's got excuses or bitching about something that they can't do, it's like, just listen to what Howard had to do to get started off his first company. If you're talking about starting off your own company today, we got the internet and how much easier it is to start something versus like what you mainly had to do back then, to be honest. Absolutely. Today, if you want to start a business, you can start a business in a day. Yeah. <laughs> and become an expert at it. And the internet can cover a whole bunch of your bumps and bruises. Yeah. Whole different world back then. How did the first year go at Countdown Aviation there? I replaced my income the first year, which was stunning. And we were doing well enough. And your wife stayed with you? His wife stayed with me. So my wife <laughs> is so unbelievable. Anyone who wants to do what I did, if your spouse isn't 100% supportive, don't do it. Because then every mistake, every bad week can create just disastrous fights that could lead to divorce. If you don't have your spouse's complete support, don't do it. My last name, which is, is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. On the other branch. <laughs> that's what you want to be yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire well then join patreon today so i've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually the guy that runs u.s staffing services i've been talking to him about doing some work with him one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content.
I agree. I mean, there's so many times. That's the reason I even just said, I mean, hopefully you don't need to get divorced after a first year or anything. But time and time again, we hear from a lot of our entrepreneurs of like, a lot of them end up getting divorced because they jump in so wholeheartedly. I was kind of joking there, but it's like, good point. I mean, just making sure that it seems like you'd have to work a lot, obviously, to get this thing going. So making sure that your spouse understands the sacrifice and how much time you're going to have to put in. Absolutely. And when you have a phone in your house, I mean, if it rings at midnight, you answer it. So we were always at work. But the business is doing well after the first year. And honestly, I need to expand a little bit. So we decided we needed some financing. And we approached a Texas bank. Problem was, I didn't have an office. I didn't have a warehouse. But we invited the banker. His first name was Guy. He came to our house. Lisa was just embarrassed. But I walked Guy back to our bedroom. (laughs) He sat on the edge of our bed. As I showed him what I do and how I do it. Okay, so are we talking about business still or are we talking about something else? This is Countdown Aviation getting financing. I'm joking, you're telling him to sit on your bed and how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there were no chairs. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. It's a small bedroom. Okay, I didn't know what, (laughs) if you knew this is a business podcast, Howard. I understand. (laughs) I'm saving the stories about screw products and my wife for the next podcast. I gotcha. So here's the banker. I'm trying to borrow $50,000. I don't have any collateral. I've got a story. I've got some results. I've got no shoes on, actually. (laughs) As I remember, I've got jeans and a t-shirt on. And after quite a long conversation, Guy believed that I knew what I was doing. And about a week later, we signed a $50,000 revolving line of credit. And why did he do that for you? Because again, especially today, even people understand, I mean, especially when you have to work from home, like you have to work from home. But back then, it didn't seem like there would be a lot of people working from home and starting their own business. Like what made him give you that line of credit? I think in hindsight, and it's something that I've lived by till today, and it's easier today because of my background. But back then, he just knew that I knew what I was doing. I mean, there was no doubt, you know, here's this crazy dude quits a job with two little kids to sell airplane parts out of his bedroom, and he's replaced his income his first year, and he's selling to people like General Dynamics and the Naval Research Lab and Honeywell. There's something there. All right. And so you got that money. Did you move out of the house? What was the next step? I didn't. We expanded. I was able to increase sales, to pay for the invoices, to carry the receivables. So I use it more as a working capital loan. And we grew so much over the next year that we actually went out and bought a much larger competitor. And I don't remember the exact numbers. I want to say that in our second year, Countdown probably did about a quarter of a million dollars in sales. So nothing great, but to work out of your bedroom, you know, not bad, especially in the 80s. So we bought a competitor using the same banker to finance it that was about 12 times our size. How do you buy a business back then? Like, did you go to your competitor and ask, hey, can I buy you? Or did they come to you? No, I went to this one specific competitor who happened to be in our town and had a building and offices and was owned by an older guy. I don't know. He was the only one I approached and he was the right size and we were able to offer him the right price. So we bought that and moved into the, moved out of the house, moved into the office, had his employees and we did okay. What do you mean by okay? Because you said it was 12 times the size of yours? 12 times the size. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, we were probably doing about a million and a half million eight at the time, but we were still a small 
company in a large aerospace universe. And that really leads to what I'll tell you will be the company that I'm most proud of in my career. We decided to start manufacturing a product that Countdown Aviation could sell. And I had no manufacturing background, no experience manufacturing. So I actually looked for the most mundane, easiest thing to make. It was aerospace spacers, which is essentially taking tube and cutting it down to a precise size that you had to hold, you know, tolerances of about a thousandth of an inch. And I hired my brother-in-law from Florida and had him come out to help me start what I named the Spacer Company. Okay. Was it still kind of like your old company and now, because before you were selling specialized parts, but now you're just going to sell spacers? Like, how does this work as far as your old company versus the Spacer Company, the Countdown Aviation versus the Spacer Company? What I was worried about at Countdown Aviation is other than work ethic and pricing, there was nothing that differentiated us from the thousand other aerospace parts distributors out there. But if I was a manufacturer, I thought that made me different. So not only would Countdown have the ability to sell a product cheaper because we were the manufacturer, it would give me the ability to sell to all these other aerospace distributors. And that's what happened. So again, as far as a spacer, so everyone's on the same page, I think of like a PVC pipe, if you just cut it right, maybe like an inch long or whatever, you can consider that the spacer. But yours is like the industrial kind that people want to use on aviation that's way better than obviously like PVC pipe, right? You're using metal or some other type of material that these companies would need to use in aviation for these little spacers. Correct. We predominantly use special kinds of aluminum, uh, stainless steel and steel. And if you think about what a spacer is, instead of stacking eight washers where you need a space a quarter of an inch, when you used our spacer, the fastener that would go inside of it fit exactly, and the distance between the two pieces the spacer was separating was exact. And then from there, we expanded the product line to even more precise parts, like bushings and other machined parts. For the Countdown Aviation, at the time when you made this transition, did you like sell it or did you just take everybody or everything that you're doing from there and roll it into the Spacer Company? We ended up selling the distribution company to a company in Dallas to focus on the Spacer Company. And that sale did not go well. <laughs> so tell us about that. It learned a lot of lessons. I financed most of it. It would be the last time in my career we've sold a handful of companies. And I will not finance another transaction. The guy sucked the cash out of the company, paid no payables, and ran it into the ground. So you sold it to your brother-in-law, you're saying? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so this is a great lesson for people as well. And it almost reinforced what I had done with Guy the Banker. The guy that bought it pulled up in a BMW, dressed in a designer suit, and his offices were in the newest, nicest office building in Dallas. And most people couldn't afford rent where he was, but he had the illusion. But he was a con man. So don't fall for appearances. Anything you do in life. In fact, there was a book a long time ago that says The Millionaire Next Door. And it talks that the majority of people that want you to think they're rich probably aren't. And, you know, people who know what they're doing don't need to impress you with their car or their dress or the quality of their office. I mean, some of that may be important, but don't fall for that. Don't let that influence, make that the last criteria that you look at. 
believe the story and check out the story. And even then, good con people and two-bit operators can create stories that sound believable and look believable. So just be careful. And if you're ever in a position to sell a company and you can avoid carrying any of the paper, carry as little as you can and get personal guarantees and hard assets pledged if you can. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. It's funny, Howard, literally probably 15 feet away, right in front of me, I have that book. And I still remember that book when I read that. I think I read it in college because the idea, The Millionaire Next Door, right? I think it was college professors who wrote it. I mean, this is still me remembering this from like 15 years ago or something like that. But the college professors wrote it. They want to find out who millionaires were. And most of them were the guys who had their own plumbing company or the guys who worked on cars and weren't all flashy. Like if anyone comes in flashy, I almost always think that they're fake, to be honest. You know, then maybe they really can have the wealth to do that. But anyone who has a podcast cover that shows them in front of a jet or a Lambo, I'm like, uh, I think you're just trying to show off. And I'm really doubting that you actually have that. So that's kind of, I guess, your point of, I guess the person you sold it to was kind of had that persona of, it seemed like you might be wealthy and doing well, but once you actually dug in and actually, I guess, sold him the company, that actually wasn't true. We probably could have found out had we researched it, but he was very good at what he did and we fell for it. And how many people were at the old company, Countdown Aviation and everything before you started the Spacer company? At Countdown, it was just me. And then when we bought the competitor, we got up to about 14 people. That's pretty good size. I mean, going into your early 30s, I mean, you must have felt pretty successful having a company where you had 14 people. Absolutely. But it was a precursor to really what worked well, and that was getting into manufacturing. And so as you start off the Spacer company, do you remember how, like, about how much money you had then? And why don't we walk through this next company, if you don't mind? Okay. So we had done okay with the countdown distribution model. So we didn't have a lot of money, but I could probably live a year without income at the time. But by then, and the same thing will repeat itself later in my career, that I got to start a business while I owned a business. So that's extremely helpful. You don't have to worry necessarily about your income or cash flow. And that was our case here. We started the Spacer Company with Countdown as its first customer and then rapidly expanded to be the biggest provider of aerospace spacers and bushings in the country. How rapid? Pretty doggone rapid. So you asked how much money I had. This interesting story also I'll talk about your personal integrity. The first week we only had the Spacer Company, I actually was awarded a $10,000 order for spacers. And I needed to buy $5,000 of tubing, and I did not have the money or the credit set up. And a friend of mine who had watched us, and a good friend, he knew all about us, he lent me the money. No question. Here's the money. Go buy the tube. So our first week, we did $10,000. Extremely fortunate. And that first week, we went from, I bought two more screw machines. So we had three screw machines within a month. And we're running those one shift a day. And life was good. So life is good. Your brother-in-law is working for you. Is it just the two of y'all at the Spacer Company? I actually had one other guy, and the brother-in-law story does not end well. I shouldn't have made a joke about that earlier, obviously. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's one of those deals, and we all experience it. I couldn't have done it without him, but I couldn't have succeeded with him. We can wait. Is that at the end of the Spacer Company? Because I want to go year by year by the Spacer Company, if that's okay. Well, it's about maybe six more months. And one of the most interesting things in my career happens and another great lesson for both people looking for jobs and people hiring to fill positions might benefit from. 
So we're another year down the road and we've grown quite a bit. We've got three screw machines and now we have two CNC lathes, which are computerized screw machines in essence. And my brother-in-law is struggling to run the shop. It's just frustrating. Well, here comes a guy through my door, remembers name, remembers face well. His name was Jim Caskey. And Jim walks into my office and he says, how much do you pay your highest paid employee? And I looked at him and I said, who are you? And what kind of stupid question is that? He said, no, really, what do you pay your highest paid employee? And I said, I think at the time we were paying like $12, $14 an hour. He said, I want $24 an hour and I'll come to work for you. I laughed. I mean, I almost spit. And he said, but I'll tell you what, if I'm not the best employee you've ever had, I'll work the month and you owe me nothing. But if I am, then pay me $24 an hour. So, you know, I think, you know, hey, I'm going to be smart and I'm going to hire the dude and I'm going to get three and a half weeks of free labor. <laughs> and he can't be that much better. Well, he was. And what did he do? He was a genius at what he did. He, on a CNC lathe that Marty was struggling to get setups done in three and four hours, Jim set up macro programs at the time, which are uh, trigonometry-based calculations on where the machine needs to move to efficiently make your part. He would create what they called macros at the time, and our setup went down to about five minutes. Instead of how long? Four hours. That was pretty efficient, huh? Pretty efficient. So in our bidding process, the way that we priced everything, and one of the reasons we became successful was we had a system for pricing, and we looked at real costs, and we would charge you four hours of setup time for every job. Even if I had the part in stock, which would be our most profitable sale because I wasn't remanufacturing it, but now we were charging four hours of labor for a five-minute task. So he paid for himself every time we set up the machine from then. From the moment he walked in. <laughs> and I got a question for him. Did he have a background in this? Like, was he not happy as his old company? Because this guy walks off the street, walks into your shop, big ego, it sounds like. And you're like, uh, we'll see. And then he's able to do it. Like, why did he walk into your shop? So in the machining industry back then, you had a lot of folks who struggled with excessive drinking. Jim was a big guy who liked to drink and fight. For all of the upside, I had to bail him out of jail quite a few times. You know, he would get his paycheck on a Friday, which was our original payday. He would drink it away and get in a bar fight, and I'd have to go get him and that kind of thing. And I learned back then, I started paying machinists on Monday, not Fridays anymore, so that at least they had to either drink during the week or wait till Friday. So he had probably burned some bridges. And, you know, I really didn't check his references, as I think back, because his claim was so bold. I wouldn't have checked his references because I wouldn't care if he did five minutes to four hours. <laughs> right. I mean, it was stunning. So besides Jim, the other thing that we really did well was I couldn't figure out how anyone else was pricing their product, their spacers and bushings in the industry. So we did something there that we've done ever since at every company, and we hired a software company that helped us with pricing. So we took things like actual raw material and waste into consideration, setup time, time per part, and any other processes that were involved. And we marked up certain aspects of those certain margins. And then based on what you wanted to buy, our computers, which were 20 meg hard drive computers at the time, would spit out a price. So we could give you a price for a bushing 
in about 15 seconds that would probably be substantially cheaper than anybody in the country for a while until they caught on to what we were doing. We were selling to every major airframe manufacturer on the planet. Boeing was our biggest customer. Bell Helicopter is a manufacturer here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They literally called us two or three times a week and would say, hey, our line's going down. I need this part. Can you make it? And I say, no, we've got a 10-week lead time right now. And they say, you don't understand. My line's going down. I need two of these, and I need them by 2 o'clock this afternoon. So those crazy stories you heard in the 80s, if you were around then, of $2,000 hammers, and I sold $2,000 bushings because we would have to shut down a machine, set it back up, which now took five minutes, but you got off of your schedule and did it. As you hear what else I've done, it was the one company that if I took you on a tour of, you would have been impressed with the company and what it looked like. And it was good. It was a great company. And I'm trying to visualize, are you like out of an aviation hangar there at the Spacer Company? I mean, are you near Boeing or these other places? I'm just trying to visualize. So anyone else who's obviously we're just listening, like what was the setup like? Because I know you said you had three machines and it sounds like there's only a couple of y'all working there and that you're making a lot of money. It seems like come year one, year two. By this time, the things that I'm telling you about were about four years in. The Spacer Company acquired another competitor. I remember right, it was about a 7,000 square foot facility. And by then we had five screw machines and five CNC lathes. And a CNC lathe is bigger than a car. If you look at a full-size pickup truck, it's probably that size. So it's a pretty big machine. And then you've got in between a 12 and a 20 foot bar that sticks out one end of it that feeds into the machine. So, you know, you need quite a bit of room. So this other company was smaller than us, but had a building and had a plating facility and a heat treat facility that we needed. We were hiring that out. So we bought them, moved into their building. You say CNC lathe. I just Googled this. It's L-A-T-H-E, right? Yes. It's a computer driven lathe. Yeah, so anyone can Google it. It's pretty big. It is big, like you're saying. Probably at least the size of a truck bed or whatever, but it's like, and some of them are bigger than, like you're saying, some are a whole size of truck, some maybe be the size of a truck bed or whatever, but I can see this is almost like a radiation. Like if you go in for a radiation and they're closing it, this is kind of how these spacers are made, like closing it and doing it that way. Correct. And by that time, those CNC lathes that we had would hold tolerances, which is a variance in size of a 10,000th of an inch. Crazy. Ten thousandth of an inch. A human hair is about five thousandths of an inch. So we were holding a fiftieth of a human hair that when we sent Boeing apart, we had to guarantee them that part held a couple of tenths tolerance. How much did these machines cost? At the time, again, we're going back to late 80s, early 90s, just under a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I'm looking at ones that look like they're from the 80s right now that are like 20 or 30,000 now. Yeah. Imagine back then. The machines were so expensive. We had companies in Germany willing to fly me to Germany for a week to tour their factories to show me their machines. And I don't know why, in hindsight, I didn't take them up on it, but I didn't. But what we were after at the time, and again, this is early computer days. So the same for a computerized lathe. It's early on. We were looking for paths of least resistance for the cutting portion of the lathe. So if we could move the cutting blade eighth of an inch instead of three inches, 
we were saving a fraction of a second on each part. And if someone ordered, you know, a thousand parts or 10,000 parts, and you could save three seconds of machining time, I mean, that was monstrous. Again, it proves why that guy who came in, how he is able to help you so much. Yeah. I mean, love him to death. We didn't part well, but I wouldn't have been where I was if it wasn't for Jim. It seems, again, maybe we'll kind of finish up the end of the Spacer Company, if you don't mind, as far as like how everything went and why you ended up kind of getting out of this business. So the Spacer Company got to the point where it was running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 363 days a year. And we were closed on Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. The challenge and the frustration for me came when I realized that I had millions of dollars of equipment and I had a third shift in an industrial warehouse that was frankly dealing in speed and other narcotics. And one of my original employees became a meth addict and I watched his life got ruined, lost his, his family over it. I had to fire him and it broke my heart. It was probably the biggest heartbreak of my time at the Spacer Company. And it just coincided that I got a group of investors from Dallas who approached me wanting to buy the company. And they probably caught me at just the right time because of my third shift frustration that I entertained their all-cash purchase price. And by entertained, you mean accepted? I ended up accepting it. To this day, it was the best decision and the worst decision that I've made in business. It was so much money for I was in my early 30s, I could virtually retire. But it was a once-in-a-lifetime business, possibly. As it turned out, maybe not. But it was the business. And again, life is so interesting. It almost goes back to, are you impressed by someone's car and their clothes? That's a company no one would have walked into and said, wow, I get this. If you saw what I do now, <laughs> you, know, you would think, oh my God, how's the guy feeding himself? There's nothing impressive. So only to that extent that my boys who are grown now saw it when they were young. My adopted daughter obviously never saw it. Just a twinge every now and then of what could it have become. What did it become? Because you know now. I can't find it now. The guy that bought it said something to me on the way out the door that stuck with me and was the best challenge of my life. He asked me after I had the check in my hand, why did I sell it? And I said, because you paid me a crazy amount of money. And he said, well, let me just tell you about people like you, which you know, when a conversation starts like that, it's going to get good. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's about me, not him. Right. He right. says, most people that are fortunate enough to hit a business home run in their life have one in their life and they're good at one thing. So the odds are you're going to piss away that money and never have another business like this again. Well, you know, he's a jerk. I don't know what the benefit of saying that was. Right. It seems like it makes no sense why you'd say that. But after the Spacer Company, I guess we'll cover it some other time. You know, we end up buying a stainless steel fabricating company that manufactures restaurant equipment. I own the largest chain of retail stores selling athletic apparel in the state of Texas. We had one of the first fundraising websites and now Readathon. And so I think back to myself, you know, you jerk. That chip on my shoulder over that was really 
terribly motivating going forward, and I swore I wouldn't be that guy. But, you know, I do come to find that what he said has some truth to it, is hopefully in your career you find out that you're not as good as you think you are, and that, you know, it does take luck and hard work and a lot of things to be successful. You know, it doesn't just happen. So this is July 1992, it looks like, I guess middle of 1992 when you end up selling, so mid-30s? Mid-30s. And what happened to your brother-in-law? And if, if he ended up getting out once a new guy came in, or you said that was a good story, and I just wanted to pause you in case it was later in the timeline here. Well, we decided to part ways, and I, I paid him an exit fee. He didn't own any of the company, but I felt bad for my sister. They had moved from Florida to Texas for the job because he had told me he could do a lot of things that he couldn't do, but he knew enough to get us started. But it was a hard discussion when I called my sister to say, I'm letting your then-husband go today, and I just want to tell you first. And that obviously created some friction in our family. Do you talk to her now? Yeah, we're close now. She's remarried to a good guy. This guy bounced around at different stuff and has actually had a stroke 20 years ago or so and has been in a nursing home ever since. I was joking around, obviously, when I said earlier something about the brother-in-law, because it seems like anything with brother-in-law never works out. You know, sometimes we talk about family and sometimes that doesn't work out, but it always just seems like that always is an issue. No matter, anytime I've heard brother-in-law in any story, for some reason, it just ends up working out like that. Absolutely. But in his defense, and I am forever grateful, we could not have got that first screw machine purchased or turned on without him. But what we would have been limited to with him, it couldn't work. Well, it just proves a point too, and I've heard this time and time again, just because there are certain people who in your company at a certain size, like they can help you get to the certain level, but people participate differently in a hundred person business versus a three person business, you know? So it sounds like, again, this is just another example of that. Sometimes that next person, even if they helped you get started or whatever, they don't want to make the next step for you or, or they're not capable of it. Like your guy, your brother-in-law wasn't compared to the new guy who walked in the shop and helped you with the spacer company. And I wish he could have, but the day Jim walked in, changed the Spacer Company. Yeah, so we got to the end of 1992. Sounds like everything going well as far as you had kind of your second company here, and you exited for millions and basically could retire if you wanted, right? Correct. Yeah, but I guess that's we'll jump into the next part of the interview, if that's all right with you. We talked about there's an eclectic career here, and again, we're only to 1992, so I thought it would be fun to kind of break this up into two and we'll jump to these other types of businesses and learn through your teachings of what you're able to figure out along the way and what we can learn from you. So I appreciate it, Howard. Real good. I appreciate your time, Austin. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And so if you want the second part of this interview, it's actually available right now if you're a Patreon member. And basically, if you thought the first part of this interview was good, the second part only gets better. And if you're not a Patreon member, then check out the episode description below on how you can become one. And after signing up to become a Patreon, you'll instantly get access to the second part of this interview. So not like we're just talking for 10 or 15 minutes. We've got a whole another hour where I discuss things like, well, maybe it'd be better if I just give you a preview of what you'll be hearing on the second part of this interview. Then I started a site called chooseathon.com. And I was going to try to corner the thon market, readathon, which we'll end up with, walkathon, jogathon, bandathon, marchathon and do all of it through one portal. And again, the technology at the time wasn't there. So the good thing at that time 
Well, didn't you make another website too? I mean, I'm on it right now. I tried it was Sexathon. You did that one too? <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the mask, that's me. <laughs> All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there.